when you feel that dullness and sleepiness or weakness of mind, that if you can, uh, make that the object of your attention, then it can often arouse the interest, the energy to um, kind of put it aside or at least not succumb to it. I think by now you must be quite familiar with the different kinds of dullness and sleepiness. There's obvious, um, you know, after so many hours of practice or being up for 15 or 18 or 20 hours, that you get tired and the mind just doesn't work. Well, then you probably need to sleep, get some sleep. But there are other times in the middle of, or even early in our wakeful day, when we can feel just as sleepy. And it's quite clear that that's not really what's, what we need. That that sleepiness then, or that dullness then, is really the result or caused by something else. And it can be... Um, fatigue due to just the paying attention to oppressive or difficult mental or physical stuff can really wear the mind down. What we need then is not sleep, but we need to refresh the mind. We need to bring some light or joy into the mind that is fatigued due to looking at difficult or being with oppressive physical and mental stuff. And so whatever you can do to bring some light and joy to the mind, whether it's being outside, being in a more spacious place, doing some, a little bit of reflection that can bring some inspiration or energy or joy to the practice, that can often help. But by this part of the retreat, I think a lot of what some of you may be experiencing as dullness or sleepiness is an imbalance in your concentration and energy. Because concentration and energy are two of the the controlling faculties of mind, and they really are, in large part, what we work with most by the middle of a retreat. Because we have gotten still enough and focused enough to be actually quite concentrated. Even though you may not feel it, you're much more concentrated than when you first came. And that concentration tends towards stillness, tranquility, um, seclusion from activity, mental or physical activity. And that's what the collected, concentrated mind um, does, so to speak. For most of us, prior to being on retreat, when we are still, quiet, um, with our eyes closed, it's time to go to sleep. And so we do. And it takes a particular kind of energy to stay present with conditions which usually mean it's time to sleep. 
stillness, quiet, uh, non-distractedness in the dark, with our eyes closed or even early morning or late at night. And so what's needed then is to not to activate yourself to somehow disrupt your concentration or stillness, but bring energy into that condition. To bring energy into stillness, calmness, quiet, tranquility. And the way to do that is to bring mental energy into it by noticing the qualities of that stillness, that quiet, that uh, very sedate, sublime, serene, if that's what you're feeling. <laughs> and if you're not, well, <laughs> maybe you've got a different kind of sleepiness. <laughs> but it's, it's activating more of the recognition ability, recognizing ability of the mind, recognizing stillness when it's there can keep you from kind of indulging and getting lost in it, getting uh, without falling under the spell of stillness. But bringing an objective knowledge, oh, this is stillness, to the subjective experience of it. If we stay purely in the subjective experience of stillness and quiet, we'll fade out, we'll be gone. If we go if we bring a balance of objectivity to it, where the subjective and objective experience or knowledge of it is in balance, eh, then we won't be cast under a spell, and neither will we disrupt that actual experience of calmness, stillness, tranquility, quiet, serenity. So. Just notice in your in your in your day when when this when sleepiness comes. Well, why? What, what's what's it all about? Is it due to over concentration, stillness, calmness, lack of activity? And if it is, then you need to raise the mental activity by noticing more carefully, more frequently, what it is you're experiencing. I think, again, like sleepiness, to make restlessness, to make the whole package of restlessness the object of your attention. But because restlessness is something like an excess of energy, you really have to look at or be with restlessness in, with a very spacious mind. Because if you try to get really micro-observant of restlessness. It's like trying to put a cap on a volcano. And it just, it makes it worse. You know, it really amplifies the experience of restlessness and energy. And it just, 
It's like being in a pressure cooker. And so with restlessness, you really need to not focus on such a narrow uh, range of physical or mental experience, but to allow the whole body, just as it's sitting or walking or standing or whatever, allow the whole body to be the object of attention rather than just the breath or just one particular manifestation somewhere in the body of restlessness, but rather to let the restless energy be equally throughout the body and feel that. It's helpful to also use a label. Use a label and recognize this experience is restlessness. And that kind of takes the um, badness out of it. It's just restlessness. It's okay. Be restless. The difficulty with restlessness when we can get to it is that it is so uncomfortable. The body is just in agony with restlessness. And it's like it's like every cell of the body is kind of being irritated. And it's really unpleasant. And to steady the mind on that degree of unpleasantness is difficult. It really is. But if we identify it as restlessness and as unpleasantness, allowing it to be in the whole body, then sometimes we can get, um, we can tolerate it or be patient with it. But we have to be careful about wanting it to go away. Because if we put pressure on restlessness, it's going to get worse. Or it's going to become more unbearable or more unpleasant. So have a good day. This about my heartbeat and my meditation. Sometimes when the attention is drawn into the heartbeat, it, your um, mind can get like into a trance with it. So although there's no objects that, can't, that aren't viable, good objects of mindfulness, uh, sometimes it's necessary to exercise some discretion in, the, in what the, how the mind forms around that object so that it doesn't become trance-like, or um, bored with the object, and so forth. (coughs) (coughs) So you might, on uh, on occasion, intentionally withdraw your attention from the heartbeat. Just place it elsewhere. Even though the heartbeat is loud and predominant, it's fine that it's in the background, and that your awareness alights at, at other sense doors, or other parts of the body. And while it is there, just really investigate what you're calling a heartbeat. Because sometimes that whole idea or form or concept falls away into something quite extraordinary. And also watch, the, watch your mind around it, various mind states that may be reactive or bored and so forth. Okay? It's okay. Yeah. What do you mean by that? 
By what? When I speak of Dhamma energy, I mean the energy of wiriya, um, courage, inspiration, strength of mind, uh, all the energy that we bring to our life and to making our, uh, our life our practice. It, it can translate down into each moment's effort that we make as right effort in the most practical sense, just attuning to the moment without too much without flooding with energy, or without uh, a lack of it either. Uh, and in the broadest sense, as I say, just that the inspiration and the power and the strength of mind, the courage to walk this path. About metta practice? Uh, pure metta is quite content when, when just basic needs are met. It, 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 uh, it could be a little excess, you know, to wish for the $10 million jackpot. <laughs> and a little more of an aff- uh, affirmation kind of meditation, rather than really the unconditionality that metta really is. It doesn't specify anything in particular. It's just the wish for well-being and for health and protection and so forth. Sure it can. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's meta, though. <laughs> uh, the second question was, um, one of your phrases was, um, may the path be peaceful and strong of heart. Hmm. Heart and mind are used interchangeably. Hmm. There's the strength of mind, heart. Is that confidence and courage? Is that yep. in the mind is always just a thought. It's always just something extra because even the movement from, say, the burning to the, the heart, in Asia, the, the base is the, of the mind is the heart, or heart-mind, we could say, in combination, is, is simply conditions. and simply causes and effects moving back and forth. And so the sense of identification is always something extra, like a, a thought. Uh, and uh, so a lot of identity is around our senses and our sense doors. It's quite natural uh, when we're uh, observing things for sometimes there to be a visualized overlay. Uh, and it's seeming to come from the head since uh, most of our sense doors are at the head. You know, we've seen sm- uh, smelling, tasting, hearing, and some of our uh, touch sensations all at the head. And so, uh, we focus a lot of energy from that area. But added to that still has to be the idea, uh, the thought that there, that there is an I who is observing it. And it's just to notice the difference. I mean, even to frame it as an observer is reinforcing the thought that there is an observer rather than just observing, just continuing to see the process and understanding, bringing some reflection to um, were very strongly, I mean, not so long ago, a uh, few centuries ago at most, our other, other sense doors was far more developed. For example, at night, uh, we, we would be sensing our way through forest trails and whatnot, and 
we'd be using our ears and nose and tongue a lot more. So a lot of a lot of focus is around seeing. So even when we talk about seeing as a uh, inner vision of meditation objects, still we tend to use the eye and strain around there. And then along with that strain or tension comes the identification, the sense that there's someone who is straining. And it's just to bring your attention there and notice that. Notice the tensing. uh, And as you are doing correctly, is dropping into the body so that body consciousness, body awareness, body seeing occurs, body observing occurs, which often really helps cut through the tendency to relate it all back to the brain. It's interesting, in, 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 in the West, a lot of times when we refer to ourselves, uh, you know, we go, I'm thinking this, or uh, we point to our head, whereas in Asia, a lot, they, they point to the heart, you know, I'm, I'm uh, uh, going to do this, or I feel this. Well, there's a lot of different states of mind, and um, I don't have time to name, say, all 52 mental factors, but you can become aware of some of the primary ones that come up as presented, say, as hindrances. So mind states of, uh, of wanting or desire or seeking or searching or expecting or uh, anticipating all come out of uh, uh, some form of attachment. And those of, of anger or aggression or frustration or irritation and fear and pushing away and resisting and so forth usually all come out of some form of ill will. And, um, uh, and then the rest are some sort of deluded state or another, like a, a sleepiness or dullness of mind, and restlessness, worry, um, doubts, so forth. So that's, those are a good class of mental states to be mindful of uh, so they don't dominate our, our experience. Uh, and then it's also equally important to be mindful of states that are aids to the path, such as uh, uh, mindfulness itself, which differs, sati differs from the mental states in that uh, it's, uh, it's very subtle. It's just noticing what's happening. It's pre-verbal. It's really before events in the thought or conceptual process. Um, so it's, that's why it can notice mind states very, uh, very well. It notices them without preferring the one to the other. It's not leaning away from the dark toward the light. It's equally noticing all things. So it's very liberating in that way. Um, t- to notice mindfulness itself, to notice the investigative quality. It's a mental factor that's... Uh, that's going in to notice the difference between unique and universal nature. A mind state of fear has certain unique qualities in the consciousness or effects in the body, and so does joy. Uh, it so investigates those aspects and notices how they also are moment to moment arising and disappearing. Uh, energy, 
calm, uh, interest, joy, rapture, concentration, equanimity, all those states are, that are really aids. That's enough. I wouldn't struggle to find a label. I would just do use with a nonverbal noticing, feel the sensation, feel the experience, and in time, if a particular label comes up that seems to uh, clearly identify the experience, then that's fine. It's enough just to to notice what the experience is. Yes. Rapture is sort of the the summit of interest. When we take start taking an interest in what's happening in the mind and body, uh, that turns into the interest becomes joy, and that keeps evolving and becomes can become quite rapturous. And you're quite right; it can actually turn into a hindrance because if it's just if rapture just continues. Uh, it can be experienced as a subtle agitation of mind. It excites the mind. And one is unable to then carefully notice and feel what's going on. So um, that's why we have calm. Calm balances that out. So from being the excitable um, state, rapturous state, it starts to mellow down when we bring in the tranquilizing. You see there's there's a lot of, there's a few states that are energetic. They bring a lot of energy to practice. And then there's a few others that bring tranquility and serenity. Uh, and without the other set, the other would be out of balance. So there'd be too much energy or too much serenity and tranquility. So our practice is in bringing it into balance. It's mindfulness that does that. It's mindfulness that actually kicks in the interest and joy and rapture and balances it naturally with the calm, concentration, equanimity states. Well, are you saying that when you experience rapture, how do you handle that? Mindfully. <laughs> knowing that it's rapture. Yes, knowing that it's rapture. If, if, we, if we're not mindful, we're sure to be attached to it. And that's how we get lost in it. You know, it's nice and blissful, but we kind of lose it, and then later on there's a kind of drop. Uh, if we stay mindful, of it and are aware of it and aware of the tendency to be attached to it, then it's going to be balanced quite naturally with the calm and concentration. It'll be even. The interest will still be there. Sometimes it can even be rapturous, but it's not going to pull the mind out of the moment. Clear to you? Yes. 
your relation. Notice the pleasantness of the rapture, the feeling tone of it, how pleasant it is. Really focus on that, almost to the exclusion of the rapture. See if you can just feel the pleasantness of the experience of that mental state. Okay, have a have a nice day trying. <laughs> I'll just give you a, s- a simple example of the um, what's meant by saying it's not particularly intellectual, but just a kind of careful looking. When, for example, we're with just the breath, the in and out or the rising and falling, the first aspect of mindfulness is really simply noticing you know, those sensations. When we say investigation or a further investigation, the awareness then uh, could notice that the breath is not one thing. There's not an in-breath or an out-breath, but actually it's a sequence of momentary sensations. And as we look with that degree of care, we see the rapidity of the change of all of those sensations. So none of that is, is particularly thought. Right? We're not thinking discursively, oh yes, the breath is made up of momentary sensations. It's just a result of a very careful observation or looking as we go from a level of concept, the breath, for example, to sensation, to the momentariness of sensation. It's in that regard that investigation as a factor of enlightenment is really representative of the wisdom factor. You could think of it as another term for wisdom. So that's one example. Another example in which I really like to, or find it useful to encourage that kind of looking uh, is in times of suffering. You're going along, going along, and everything is more or less going smoothly. And then something happens and you can feel (laughs) a glitch in in the smooth flow of empty phenomena. So then it's just, it becomes interesting to say, okay, well, what's there? You know, what's glitching? Again, it's not particularly, we start thinking about it, but the, the glitch itself, the, the feeling of suffering, rather than being a problem, can really just signal us to look more carefully or to open in a wider way. Because often, suffering is a sign that something is going on that we're not noticing. Something is there that we're not accepting, 
and we're often not accepting it because we don't notice that it's there. So that's the kind of investigation. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. All, all of that. Not only become, for example, if there's fear to, to investigate or become aware of the bodily sensations, but then might even take it a step further and see how are you relating to the body sensations. You know, is it with openness? Is it with defensiveness? Is it with contraction? I'll just add one addendum to all this. I don't mean to suggest that in this process of investigation, there's never any thought about it. You know, because sometimes just a particular thought or a particular word comes into the mind, which can help both direct the investigation and help us understand. What I mean by saying it's not intellectual, it's not a long discursive process. It's not trying to figure it out in our minds. But sometimes just, you know, something like, okay, open, what's happening? You know, there, there might be some words that come into mind like a Dharma coach, you know, which can be helpful. I think sometimes it is hard to tell which comes first. You know, whether there's some kind of agitated energy in the body which is making the mind agitated or the other way around. Um, <laughs> there are two opposite approaches you can take. You know, and so you could play with one, and if that doesn't work, do its opposite. Basically, restlessness means there's an excess of energy. The energy is spilling over the container of concentration. That's how concentration is like it provides the, uh, the steadiness, the stability of mind. When our concentration is very strong, it can hold vast amount of energy without becoming restless. But if at a particular sitting, the concentration is not strong enough or it's not well established, and there's a lot of energy, it's as if the energy is spilling over the edges. So you can do one of two things. One way you could work is just to make the awareness very wide. So instead of trying to bring the mind down to a single point like the breath, open it up, become aware, become aware of sounds, become aware of the whole body. In that, in that way, you could make the noting, hearing, sitting, and then maybe go to a touch point. Hearing, sitting, touching. So you're really playing with the openness 
the degree of openness of the awareness. So that's one way. The opposite approach, uh, which you could try, knowing that it's the excess of energy and the relative weakness of the concentration at that point. And this especially happens if, if there's a lot of resoluteness in the mind at that time. If there's a lot of resoluteness, you, you could do a very pinpointed exercise. Start counting the breaths where you're not attending to anything else, but you're really working to strengthen the concentration, to bring it into balance with the energy. You know? So you could use a counting method, not attending to a lot of different objects. Do you follow? So those are the two opposite approaches. You could see which one works better for you. Mm-hmm. Just one more piece in that. I think it's very helpful, to go back to the first question, to investigate your relationship to the feeling of restlessness. Before you do either of those approaches, you want to see how is the mind relating to the restlessness. Is there aversion? Is there frustration? Is there struggle with it? Or can you come to a space... Restlessness is the fireworks display at the moment. And so you get very open, very balanced behind it, and then you approach it how you do. Yeah. Right, right. That, of course, just makes one more restless. Last evening, Michelle spoke about this energy that comes up and takes the form of a creative energy. And in fact, one can frequently fall into the space of thinking about all these different projects to do them. And then she says, frequently we do that because we don't know the way to go deeper with that energy. And I'm wondering, I think this relates to the first question that was asked about investigation. How, in fact, can one go deeper with this energy? How can you turn it around where you're not spending all of that time mm-hmm. in creative thought? And, and mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it really is amazing how brilliant we get <laughs> sitting. <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden, the mind... <laughs> Uh, about a vast range of things. My experience, and this, there's something really exquisitely beautiful about this process. that the deepest wellspring of creativity, that the wellspring of creativity comes from increasingly deeper levels of silence. That's, that's the wellspring of intuitive wisdom, of intuitive creativity, where we're not just rehashing old ideas, but we're really dropping into a place of deeper and deeper silence out of which just an amazing intuitive wisdom about, about a whole range of things 
starts to starts to come up. It's one of the things I really love about, um, just as an example, some of the uh, Japanese art, uh, the the scroll paintings of the, the Zen masters, the, because you can just see the place. I mean, it's so clearly coming out of a place of this profound silence. It, it, it doesn't feel like it's the expression of neurosis. <laughs> yeah, it just... And so it's, it's knowing that. Knowing that is a reminder that as the ideas start coming up, you know, the creative impulse, instead of, you know, getting lost in a proliferation of thought about them, to turn it back again into the practice to reach even deeper levels of silence. And and so that that creative energy gets, I don't know if this is the right metaphor exactly, but plowed back in to to the field. And we go deeper and deeper and deeper until more and more we're really living in that place. That our life becomes the expression of creative energy because our minds are silent. Silent doesn't mean that nothing's arising. It means that we're not so caught in what's arising. So it's, it's, it's one of the most beautiful aspects of the unfolding path. Well, I, mean, I, I guess um, I'm not really looking for a mechanism in that idea. You know, it's, it's, uh, so though in fact the, the creativity or the, actually the thought around it becomes an, almost like a reminder or a touchstone to turn back. In right, right, right. Just appreciating, you, you appreciate in the moment that phenomenon of creative energy and out of that appreciation of it, let that be a reminder not to particularly get discursive about it at this time. This is not the time to particularly give expression to it, but just to, to notice the process of it, let that be sort of an inspiration to keep noting, noticing, to deepen the silence further and further, and to make, it, to make the silence more and more integrated. So that's the, that's the place we're living out of rather than visiting. You know, but that's practice. That's, that's the fruit of practice. Okay, is it short? We have about two and a half minutes. Okay. <laughs> the answer will be short, too. <laughs> I don't know if the answer is going to be short. (laughs) I think that what we call going crazy is really a very simple, although tremendously profound phenomenon. 
and that is, it seems to me to be very much related to the degree of identification we have with what's arising. You know, when people, what we call going crazy, it's really often being totally identified with perhaps some strange things arising in the mind. But the, the, the arising themselves are not the problem. Because as you probably know from sitting, we can have some pretty bizarre stuff going on. If there's space, if there's mindfulness, if there's non-identification, then it's no problem. The mind is not going crazy. It's just weird stuff happening. But when we don't have that distance, when we don't have that spaciousness, and, and I'm sure we all know people who, you know, at least at times, get totally caught if what's arising happens to be fearful or whatever, you know, and frightening in, one, in some way. So then the mind can really get out of balance. Uh, it's in that respect that mindfulness can be and is a very great protection. Because if you're mindful, really mindful, and the mindfulness is strong, then whatever it is that's arising is okay. But sometimes the mindfulness is not so strong. You know, and you do get caught. I think the, the kind of fear that might arise about going crazy, you really, uh, you really need to speak you know, with whoever you're working with about that. Because there's one kind of fear that arises that's really fine. You know, <laughs> because in the practice, things sometimes get strange, and, and that, that thought can happen a lot. You know? And in most cases, it's really not a problem. You can just note the thought. But sometimes people, that thought comes, and often if there's a history, often if there's a history of some kind of mental imbalance, it's coming as a, as a kind of signal, mm, you know, maybe, maybe it's good to back off a little bit. So to distinguish between those two, you really need to talk it out with whoever you're working with. <laughs> Not that I know of, but it could happen. <laughs> so on that <laughs> uplifting thought, <laughs> please carry on. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.